are in John 18, where we start with the Garden of Gethsemane, a big transition happening here. Chapters 13 through 17 was all kind of the what went on in the at the end in the upper room and all the teaching and then finally the prayer of Jesus and that's been a long time we've been in that section that time he spent with his disciples that intimate discussion time we're going back to the narrative now into John 18 and into the end the garden the betrayal the arrest the trial the crucifixion the panic of the disciples the resurrection and the victory of our Lord and Savior and his ascension into heaven so we're going to get into that whole stuff now so this is a very big transitional week so open your bibles with me to john 18 and i will open us up in a word of prayer father as we open up your word today and we transition uh and it's we're doing this in the middle of july and normally this is kind of the easter message but whereas we look at the the last few days of jesus on earth and everything that went on there will you open us up to the story that we are also familiar with and teach us truths that will transform our lives. Truths that will transform because we open ourselves up to the living and enduring word of God. Amen. In fact, that's our logo. You can see it above. First Baptist Church. Listening to the word of God, learning from the word of God, and then living out the word of God. And I pray that that's what we're doing, even if you're not meeting in a specific building in person. We are still commanded to listen to the word of God, to learn from God's word, and to live out God's word. And I pray that everything we do in this church, uh, the Sunday messages, the daily psalm devotionals, the visits, the calls, the texts, the emails, everything is helping encourage you, along with the other things you do, your own personal discipleship, your own visitation of other people, your own prayer time, but it's helping you in your growth. Like I said, this is a major transitional chapter here. After 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, five chapters of the upper room, we now get back to the, I mean, all that, think about it, that the whole upper room is it's just, I mean, that all happened in, could have been some on Wednesday, but mostly Thursday, right? All that happened, some maybe Wednesday, Thursday, but definitely if you're back in chapter 12 and the triumphal entry, that was just Sunday. So this is all the last week of Jesus' life and maybe the last few days. And now we get into it. And it says right here, and it says right here, when Jesus had spoken these words, these words, that's bold and in green because it's the words of chapters 13 through 17. Everything he spoke as he was preparing his disciples for his departure, all these words he spoke, and encouragements and teachings and revelations and then finally his final high priestly prayer the prayer of jesus in chapter 17 after he did all this he went out with his disciples across the brook kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered noticed a garden <laughs> is green and bold because this is the specific garden he went to a garden well we know from the other text from the synoptic castles this is the garden of gethsemane so next week we're going to talk this if we carried on in john it would be very short because it's a very short telling of what happened there because the the other three gospels had covered it in detail so he just goes right to judas showing up and betraying jesus 
but we're going to go into a little bit more of a context and the details of what garden, what its name is, what happened there, before we actually get to next week's message where we actually look at the betrayal of one of his close friends and 12 disciples, Judas Iscariot. Before we get into that, we're going to take a little bit of a rabbit trail into Mark and Luke and get more context and details on this garden that Jesus is in. And it's with, it's with, uh, I don't know, it's kind of like communion. It's with like a heavy heart or a sweet and sour approach that I come to this because it's it's a heavy thing. The son of man taking on the sins of the world. My sins, your sins, upon the eternal spotless son of God. The idea that the trinity is split, that he who was holy for all eternity would take the sins of mankind upon himself to purchase our salvation. It's an amazing thing. And so it's with a little bit of somber attitude that I approach this. It's glorious because it's, it, that's why it's called Good Friday, right? It's good for us, but it, it was bad in the sense that Jesus Christ took the sins of the world upon him. So we're going to look at that today in detail, starting with his entrance into the Garden of Gethsemane. So let's jump over to Mark. Mark 14, you can follow on the screen. Mark 14, verse 32 and 34, the Garden of Gethsemane. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Remain here and watch. So he's told them at the top, he said, Sit here. But then later he says, Watch. And in other places he said, Watch and pray. And then they couldn't watch and pray, and then they were tired. So here's Jesus at his greatest time of trial, of the tribulation, of about to take the sins of the world and be crucified on top of all that and have everybody flee from him. Uh, and his closest friends were encouraged to watch and pray with him, but they slept while Jesus was agonizing to the point of death. My soul, look at that in bold. My soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. And yet they were not aware of the situation. They had not seen the signs of the times. They did not what was going on. They thought he was going to take over the Roman government and lead a military campaign. And really he was the sacrificial lamb. And he's about to partake of the sins of the world. And he's agonizing to the point of death. And they're sleeping. Lord, may you not find us, your servants, asleep when you need us. There's actually, he taught that in parables that when he comes again, will his servants not be lazy and gluttonous and asleep and not aware of what he's doing. Um, but I'm going to talk a little bit about the place that he's at. It's not by chance that he's at a garden named Gethsemane. Why is that? Well, a lot of what Jesus did in, in, in his parable teaching, he would use what was around him. So he had been around uh, vineyards and olives and wheat fields, and he taught on this. And this uh, garden of Gethsemane is a place where they took the olives and they pressed them and got the olive oil out of them, part of their business there. So this was the Garden of Gethsemane. But there's actually named uh, a stone called the Gethsemane Stone, which is the big stone that was used to press the olives. And I remember back in the day, Focus on the Family teamed up with Ray Vanderland, and they put out a series called That the World May Know. And we watched them back in Long Creek on DVD. Uh, but I think they're available now. You can get them in digital format somewhere. I, I think I have found some clips of That the World May Know by Ray Vanderland 
uh, online, and I've watched some of them recently. But I remember uh, thinking back to this, and he, what was cool about Ray was he was on site in Israel, and he would walk through these locations and then do a teaching about events that happened there. So, you know, if he was in Jericho, he would talk about the walls of Jericho. And if he was at the tomb of Jesus, he would talk about that. And, well, he went to a garden, maybe not the exact one, but he went to a, a place where they press olives and was talking about the Garden of Gethsemane and specifically the Gethsemane stone. So I'm going to read you exactly what he said in that video so that you get a context from... Uh, him, who's a professional tour guide in Israel and knows the history of Israel and even made a video on it with folks on the family. He says this. Let's see if I can find a lit. In his That the World May Know video on the Gethsemane stone. The word Gethsemane is derived from two Hebrew words. Gat, which means a place for pressing oil or wine, and Shemaneum, which means oils. Together, it's Gethsemane, during Jesus' time, heavy stone slabs were lowered onto olives that had already been crushed in an olive crusher. <laughs> my soul is crushed even to the point of death. My soul is heavy even to the point. So Jesus has already been crushed, and now on top of him, the Gethsemane stone is going to be laid. Oh, I'm just supposed to be reading right now, sorry. During Jesus' time, heavy stones were lowered onto olives that had already been crushed into an olive crusher. Gradually, the slab's weight squeezed the olive oil out of the pulp, and the oil ran into a pit. The oil was collected in clay jars. <laughs> collected in clay jars. The oil, Jesus paid the price. The oil was pressed out of him. Later on, we're going to see he sweat, blood, sweat mixed with blood. But Jesus, he's already been crushed. Now he's being pressed with the sins of humanity and the oil of the Holy Spirit disperses out of him and is collected in clay jars. Do you see the symbolism there? We are called those clay jars, those human vessels that now contain the oil of joy, the gladness, the Spirit of God, validating we are his children. That, this is this amazing symbolism here. God knew exactly what he was doing. I keep reading. Okay. Uh... The image of the Gethsemane on the slope of the Mount of Olives where Jesus went the night before his crucifixion provides a vivid picture of Jesus' suffering. The weight of the sins of the world pressed down upon him like a heavy slab of rock pressed down on olives in their baskets. His sweat, quote, like drops of blood falling from the ground, Luke 22:44, flowed from him like olive oil as it was squeezed out and flowed into the pit of an olive press. And I'll go even further that if that was collected in clay jars then, that was eventually spread out, right? Later on, he breathes on the disciples and says, Here, take the Holy Spirit. Take the oil of joy. Take, take my presence. Take my divine nature into you. He took our sin and gave us his righteousness. And right now, he's being pressed in the garden. And they're asleep. But what amazes me is here you are, Jesus, in the place of the heavy stone, the Gethsemane. He's telling his disciples, my soul is sorrowful, even to the point of death. He's being crushed. He's being squished. In fact, Luke goes, the verse that was referenced by Ray Vanderland, Luke goes on to say this in Luke twenty-two forty-four, And he, Jesus, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. Now, some people say, well, it, he didn't really sweat blood. He sweat, his sweat was so big it was like drops of blood. You can say either way. The sweat was like drops of blood or it was sweat mingled with blood because doctors have said when someone is under intense 
sorrow and agony that can actually open up the capillaries and you can actually have your sweat mingled with blood. And I, of course, believe that's what happened there, that Jesus was agonizing over something and sweating great drops of blood because it says, and he being in agony, he prayed all the more earnestly. So, think about this. The Gethsemane stone was literally crushing the very life out of Jesus. And it was pressing the sweat and or blood right out of him. Hundreds of years before this, Isaiah prophesied this in Isaiah 53.5. He was pierced. He was crushed for our healing and peace with God. Okay, so he later does get pierced, both the nails through his hands and feet, but also the spear that went up and pierced him specifically. No bones were broken, but he was speared. Prophesied that he would be pierced, but here he's crushed. He says, I'm agonizing, I'm crushed, the weight of death. And he's in Gethsemane, the, gar the, the, the garden of the heavy stone that presses the olive to get the oil out so it can be collected in clay jars. Oh, the weight of sin. My sin. Your sin. It crushed our Savior. And so, there's been movies and there's been commentaries and there's been discussions on this agonizing time in Jesus' life when he's crying out to God and he's sweating drops of blood and a lot of it is focused on the physical pain of him being crucified. It was the worst form of torture known to man at that time, the worst way to die. And I, and of course, although I believe that, I think there's something more significant, something more spiritual going on here. It doesn't seem to me that the God-man, the God-became-man Jesus would be agonizing that much over the crucifixion, although that's bad. I think there's more going on there. And so this is a tough place. It's a tough prayer as he cries out to the point of agonizing and sweating, sweat mingled with blood. So as Jesus was agonizing over this death specifically, what was he praying? What was causing Jesus so much agony and again, there's speculation, but let's look a few verses before and see how Luke explains what he was praying about. So this is backing up a few verses. Luke 22, 41 and 42. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So obviously in his humanness, it wasn't his will to do whatever he needed to do. And he says, Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way to accomplish my task on earth, which is to redeem humanity, that's very clear in scripture and the whole book of John's been teaching it. If there's any other way to rescue the lost sheep of God, find another way. But nevertheless, in submission, what a great example, not my will, but yours. So Jesus is agonizing, but in his prayer, he's asking if God can make a different way. It's his, it's his humanity crying out there because in his divinity, of course, he knew this is what he came to earth to do. He's made that clear his whole time. But as it approached, as what approached? As the death on the cross, as the whippings, as the beatings, as the crucifixion? Maybe. I'm sure that was part of it. But may I submit to you that I think the wording here is very specific and that Jesus was agonizing to the point of death, sweating drops of blood, and crying out for God to make a different way 
because of this specific word here. Remove this cup from me. Right? I have a cup right here. I'm going to take a drink. The idea of drinking a cup that you don't want to, it's in the Bible. In fact, I would say that maybe there's three different cups that we could talk about, okay? Because I think in this context, just so you know, Father, if you only remove this cup from me, I think there's ample evidence to show that this is the cup of iniquity of all mankind. This is because he took all of our sins, right? Right. He atoned for everything, past, present, future. So the cup of iniquity of all mankind, and there's references in Scripture to this cup of iniquity that eventually reaches the bram and rolls over, and then God has to bring judgment. So at the right time, Jesus was sent to be the redemption. And as he's about to drink this cup of iniquity, the sin of this is the eternal holy God, right? The Trinity of God dwelled in perfect unity for all eternity. And Jesus now is a man. He's still God. He's still holy. No sin upon him. And so and remember, too, on the cross, the Father had to turn away. And Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What would cause the Trinity to forsake itself? What would cause God the Father to forsake God the Son if it wasn't for the fact that the sins of the mankind were placed on him? Cursed is he who dies on a tree. He was cursed. Isaiah talks about him being cursed and striction and rejected. And so here, the cup of iniquity, he's about to drink. And so I would say there's three cups. Number one, the cup of iniquity or the cup of sin, if you're taking notes, that's Genesis 15, 16. And... Uh, the first reference to that, the, to the word iniquity, is Genesis 15, 60, where it says, and it doesn't use the word cup, but it uses the picture of a cup. It says, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Okay, The iniquity, the cup of iniquity, is, is another way of translating that, because it's saying there's this bowl or this cup of iniquity that's not yet full, and so it's not time for Israel to go displace them yet. Everything is done in the fullness of time, and, and, and for them, the fullness of time wasn't for 400 more years. 400 more years, the wicked, sinful Amorites had to transgress God and pollute the land before God was finally, judgment comes, and they were removed from the land. But in Genesis 15, 16, that's where it's first, the word iniquity is first brought out. And it said that the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. So there's a cup of sin or the cup of iniquity that's filling up, waiting for the eventual judgment of God because though God is loving, God is also holy. And so he has to be both and there has to be judgment to sin. And then what is poured out is referenced in Isaiah 51, 23. So the first one is Genesis 15, 16, the cup of iniquity or the iniquity being filled up in a cup. But then next in Isaiah 51, 23, it talks about the anger the cup of anger or the cup of wrath, that God is going to make them drink of the cup or the chalice or the bowl of his anger or his wrath. So first for mankind, there's the cup of our sin or iniquity. And in response to that, if it's not dealt with, then in the fullness of time comes the cup of God's anger or wrath. They're meant to drink it. It even says they have to drink it down to the end of the dregs, the full measure of God's wrath. And, and that's, of course, seen in uh, the, the flood with Noah is seen in the, in the Tower of Babel, and it's seen again in the end times. The, the prophecy that the next time God floods the earth, it's not going to be with water, it's going to be with fire, as he totally cleanses and purges this earth from sin. And the full wrath of God is poured out, and that's also in Revelation. So you have the cup of iniquity or sin, Genesis 15, 16. 
that results in eventually after the patience of God wears out and after he gives everybody as much time as possible to repent, Second Peter, the Lord is patient, not wanting any to perish, then Isaiah 51.23 says that the cup of God's anger or God's wrath pulls out, is poured out. But Jesus here is demonstrating one last cup. If you remember just before he drinks the cup of the sin of iniquity, he did communion with the disciples in the room in the Last Supper, and he said, this is the cup of my blood, or the cup of peace. And so he said, this is, and he, as he did communion, this, this represents, right, my broken body and my blood. The cup of blood, is what he called it, that brings you peace with God. So for the only way to deal with our cup of iniquity as it fills up is to either receive the cup of God's anger or cup of God's wrath, or to avoid it by partaking the cup of God's blood, of the covenant in blood, or the cup of the covenant in blood that brings us peace with God, which is why communion is a big part of the symbolism of reminding us what Jesus Christ has done with us. So for those, of course, you go back to the Israelites going to Egypt and the blood on the doors, okay? So we are covered, we are we are atoned for by the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made. So I'm saying there's three cups. <laughs> the cup of iniquity or sin, which leads to the cup of anger or wrath, which can only be placated, avoided, annulled by the cup of the blood of Jesus, which brings us peace. And in Isaiah as well, verse 53, 6, it says this, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There it is, the cup, okay, two, two different pictures there, the Gethsemane stone, <laughs> and the Lord has laid on him this heavy stone, the iniquity of us all. And he drank of our iniquity, and on the cross he took the full wrath of God, which is why God had to say, turn his back on him. Jesus had to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Isaiah, hundreds of years before, says, and the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Here, in the garden, if you want to be specific, it's like here as the as the stone of the sins, the way it is, he's saying, Lord, take this cup from me. It, it's all looking forward to the cross, but in a sense, here he was actually kind of drinking of that cup. He was taking the 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 sin upon him at that point and ready to be then crucified. He would bear that burden to the cross and be punished for our sin to then remove it from us forevermore. I think that's interesting. That here in the garden, Jesus is grappling with drinking the cup of iniquity, taking my sin, your sin upon himself. And then he bore it to the cross and he paid the price, death, for our sin. He bore our burden. He, it, he, the Lord laid the, God laid the iniquity of us all on him and it crushed him. And he bore it to the cross and dealt with it and removed it as far as the east is from the west and atoned for us. And then was able to give us his righteousness, put his oil, his spirit in our clay jars. That's why I say I approach this passage of scripture in John 18 and the parallel verses that we're covering with sober reality. Yes, it's joyful what he did for us, but it's also sobering what God had to do. The, the, the depths that God had to go to redeem lost humanity, to redeem me. And then... Of course, looking in the yellow, the bold yellow, nevertheless, that's a very big term there, right? Nevertheless, your will be done. His, the submission of Christ, may that be something that I learn to imitate. That there's plenty of times in my life 
There's stuff ahead of me that maybe I don't want to do or embrace or deal with. Nevertheless, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus was willing to be bruised and crushed and pierced. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, that stone pressed him to where blood and sweat was mixed. And he cries out, Lord, remove this from me if you can. I don't want to drink this cup. But he did, so that we didn't have to face the cup of God's wrath that we can have the cup of blood that brings us peace with God. So before I close, it's worth looking at this passage back in Isaiah that we've been referencing just because it's so powerful and the fact that it was written so many years before it highlights all of this. So let's go there. As we look at the crushing stone that was placed upon our Savior. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. I'm going to read that again. But Jesus was pierced for my transgressions. Jesus was crushed for my iniquities. Upon Jesus was placed the punishment that brought Steve peace. And by Jesus' wounds Steve has been healed. All we are like sheep and have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the importance of that concept that Jesus went to the garden of the crushing stone. And the iniquity of us all was laid on him. And it pressed him out in anguish as he took upon the sin of all humanity. It pressed on him and caused blood to mix with his sweat to drop. It caused him to cry out to God in his humanity, if there's any other way, take this from me. But then he realized there was no other way. He had to take our sin so he could give us his oil, his spirit, his righteousness, his divine nature in our clay jars so that we could live the supernatural life unto God. It's heavy business. Um, uh, okay, so I want to close with this thought. Everybody takes communion in a different way, but one of the ways to approach communion is is that deep, sober, somber attitude of counting the cost of what God did to take my sin and your sin. But the other side is also the the joy, the what Jesus had a great meal with his disciples and his last supper with them when he did communion was more of a positive thing and I'm going to do this and I'm going to die for you but I'm going to come again and we're going to rejoice and so it's a reminder not only of the price that was paid but the look forward the hope of heaven of being fully restored with God and so there's a song I sing all the time right you know because it's all talking about the, the God that's in me pouring out of me. I got a river of life flowing out of me. That river of life flowing out of me is the peace with God that was purchased by the blood of Christ as the river of life flowed out of him as he sweat blood drops, sweat mingled with blood, as he was crushed, as he was beaten, as he was crucified. It says that the oil that flowed out of him, flowed into me to a clay jar. And now I have that, it says, that suppressing joy in us. That people wouldn't see us, but they would see the treasure in us. 
And so we do have a river of life flowing out. It flowed from the Son of God to us here in the garden on the cross. And then, well, it was culminated when the Holy Spirit fell, right? And the church was born. And then they went out and did signs, wonders, and miracles and preached the gospel and everybody was getting saved. Right? So it was culminated at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit actually came. So that's the, that's the sweet and sour. The, the, the darkness of the cross preceding the new day where God now can dwell in us and we can approach his throne room boldly and we have the fullness of the Spirit. So I want to close with, uh, if I can move over to do it, uh, uh, I promised that I would find someone better to sing I've Got a River of Life. So here's a modern version of I've Got a River of Life sung by Joe Bailey, performed live. Well, I mean, I mean he performed it live, but it's on video now. Um, I'm going to play it, and then I'll come back, and I'll close this with a word of prayer. I've got a river of life flowing out of me Makes the lame to walk and the blind to see Open prison's door set the captives free I've got a river of life flowing out of me. Spring up within my soul. Spring up Make me whole. Spring up and give to life abundantly spring up well in my soul spring up well and make me whole spring up well and give to Father, I thank you that what's on the screen is true. That Jesus was pierced for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. That weight was on him. And it brought us peace. We now have the, we don't have to face the cup of your wrath or your anger. We, fit, we drink the cup of your peace. We have communion, with, oneness with you, Father. Thank you that we have been healed. Thank you that Jesus took the iniquity of us all. Lord, I just pray that today as we reflected on that, dark time as the son of man is about to be betrayed by his own disciple as his closest friends are going to flee but we see the depth not of necessarily the physical pain and suffering that Jews went through but that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God what an amazing and awesome and terrible thing at the same time we thank you for that and we praise you let us never forget the price that was paid for our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.